Hi, girl. Podcast segments pulled and edited by Nesworks. It's not bad. It's not bad for a high school boy. Another great song I never want to hear again. Yeah, never want to play it again. I'm just saying. You think I came here dressed like this for a friendly get-together? Yeah, Nessworks. What? Those jeans look dynamite on Nessworks. Ooh. <laughs> I'm not mad. Play it again. Play it again. Those jeans look dynamite on Nessworks. <laughs> You got to put food on the table, Mel. Yoo-hoo, baby! And I'm like, what? I've got information, man. New shit has come to light. Now that is powerful. Yeah. <laughs> okay, kids, you're in for a real treat today. Man, I, I just, like I said, brother, we're going we, we're gonna to record this. And then I, I'm just gonna, I gotta go on a deep dive. Great American, Notorious 253 in the house. Party people is in the house, that's for sure. I got a feeling. Well, episode number nine, Dana Brown. That tonight's gonna be a good night. Wow, those vocals are dry. I need a little, I need a little sex wax on there. Good, good night, I got a feeling. That tonight's gonna be. So how are you feeling and how are you doing? I'm uh, I'm doing a white Russian tonight <laughs> to do the vibes. Hey, watch the cocktail, man. I'm just saying. Well, episode number nine, Dana Brown. I got a feeling it's going to be a good ride. I got a feeling it's going to be a good night. So disclaimer right off the bat, we got a lot of stuff to get to, a lot in your musical history and career. So I tell you what, we're going to get as far as we can, see where this ride takes us. So without further ado, Dana Brown, let's just jump into the beginning. Your musical influences, everything you got going on. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird world, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, my musical influences, it's funny because jump forward to Seattle when I got here, everybody wanted me to play rock, and that's not where I came from. Uh, you know, all my brother used to let me listen to is Ohio Players and Bell and James and Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> the first time I ever heard Van Halen, I thought it was atrocious. I was like, what is this crap? <laughs> I was like, this is hideous. This crap is hideous. So the tones coming out of Eddie's red guitar was just blazing. I, just, I, I mean, I learned to appreciate it later, but it's like, especially because when I got up here to, you know, when I got, and that's later and it's the whole thing, but when I got, when I was playing with the guys from Heart, um, you know, I, I was in a rock band, so it's like the Ten Bulls thing. I had to, I was a rock guy, you know, I had to be a rock guy, but I couldn't really tell them, you know, but it's funny. It ultimately, not to jump forward because we got stuff to go through, but it ultimately ended up paying off because um, the, the Ten Bulls stuff that I'll get you in the future to listen to. Sure. They took in my funk roots. I mean, we had some stuff that was co-written by me that was super funky and we kind of mixed it with their progressive kind of, Coliseum rock thing. It's kind of mm -hmm. cool. You'll hear it in the future. 
Okay, so good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna rope you back in, but before we do, you mentioned Van Halen and people that know you, you could be a bit quirky. I came into your garage in Federal Way, Washington one time, and you had, I think it was a 24-track board in there. And I said, hey, what's up with the board? And you said, oh, Van Halen's second album was recorded on that. Oh, okay. Actually, and- the first and, sec- first and second album, first and second album. It was at MCI console, and I was fortunate enough to get it off a friend of mine. Wow. And uh, yeah, I was in possession of that that desk. Yeah, you know, I wish I could say, oh, go to the socials and I'll post a picture of it, but we actually do have a picture of it sitting in your garage. But let's go back to the beginning. Um, born in Redding, California? Yep. Family influences, local musicians. Where, and you mentioned something about your brothers were kind of into a more funk type of thing, Earth, Wind & Fire, Ohio Players, Bell & James. We have a snippet coming up with that. Yeah. What I would like to do is uh, I'm just going to play you a little snippet here, and then you can touch base and you can fill me in on it, okay? Okay. <laughs> While I'm flashing back. Early in the evening, just about time. Over by the courthouse, it's starting to unwind. Four kids on the corner, trying to bring him up. Willie picks a tune out, and he throws it on the hub. Down on the corner, out in the street. Playing the ball boys are playing, bringing it up happy feet. What just went through your head? Oh, man, I just flashed back. So I'm a baby. I mean, I'm like, I mean, I'm not a baby, but I'm probably a toddler. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. Probably more than a toddler because I can remember it. <laughs> sure. Hey, um, that's your earliest memory, right? I'm walking with my mom and my, you know, I'm the second youngest of six kids. We're all walking up the street. Uh, we lived in a place called Anderson Heights, which was the, yeah, I don't know what you would call it. It was the lower middle class like new subdivision um but um, that was my childhood so anyway it's called anderson heights anyways we're walking up the road one evening i've got to be um eight maybe Mm -hmm. i don't know something like that anyway there was a garage that was open and a band was playing and they were playing that song and i just remember looking at this drummer and i'm like that drummer is the coolest thing i've ever seen You know, it's like, that guy is cool. He's really cool. I mean, I don't even know what cool was, but was back then. But <laughs> I was like, just taken in by this drummer, right? He was singing and playing the drums. Anyways, ultimately, in the end, you know, years later, when I was 16, I'd end up playing with this guy. Wow. I didn't realize it till you know, he was super respected in the, in the uh, Northern California, Southern California. Great, great drummer. Taught me everything. Taught me everything I shouldn't play. I mean, he spanked me hard <laughs> as a 16-year-old. I mean, but I would not be the bass player I am. I literally would not be the bass player I am today without him stopping me and saying, stop that. Do not play like that. Do not do this. Do not do that. You know, he was a huge influence on me, Albert Presidio and Johnny Nine. Sure, as we move down your uh, musical journey, your path, if you will, we'll cover that. Uh, But first of all, before that, I'm going to play another snippet, and then you can uh, flash back to this one as well. When it all goes crazy 
Remember, I love you on the midnight hour on the Nest Pod. A little soft rock coming at you from 1977. <laughs> it wasn't funk. It wasn't, you know, R&B. It wasn't mm-hmm. soul. That was one of the first records I bought. And uh, I don't know. I just like the song. I got a chance to run sound for them later when they wow. didn't sound like that. <laughs> you mentioned your sound engineering. And as we go through this, that's why we're calling this Dana Brown version v.1 version point one because we could do 10 of these easy just a couple segments just on your sounds engineering i mean it's it's all over the map from country to rock to grunge to dance music top 40 so ventura i know where you're going i know where you're going (laughs) it's funny because ventura i went and saw america with my (laughs) sister and brother-in-law when i was super young and i just thought to my it was it, it it just hit me I didn't know what sound was. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. I just didn't know what it was, but I was like, you know something? I want to make that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. When I saw that America concert, I was like, I want, I want to make that sound. It's like, I want to, I want to, I kept looking at the guy out in the little tower in the middle of the crowd. And I was just like, I want to do that. Part of my influence. I mean, it really, I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks, whatever that sound is coming out. I want to do that. Not only did you want to play the music, you also wanted to be the guy in the sound booth, and you achieved both of those. Yeah, yeah. Let's pop it off. Let's get back into the midnight hour. Okay. Yeah, here we go. One, two, three, four. It's beautiful. Chewing on a piece of grass, walking down the road. I will argue, arguably say that they sound better than that live when I saw them. Wow. We'll get to more of your bands down the road, but you've also played a lot of these songs with the Davinos. I love that band, and uh, even though I was a, a, a funkadelic, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I loved, I loved that band. No, you mentioned that Firefall was the first record, one of the first that you bought. And we're making our way to the famous, now famous classic Nest Pod segment of What Did You First Buy? But before we do that, we're going from these early influences into another genre that hit really hard when you were probably right in your early 20s, I would guess, maybe. A few seconds away from switching to the redundant sense sequencer, T minus 27 seconds. We have gone for redundant set sequencer start, T minus 
20 seconds and counting. T minus 10, <laughs> 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. We've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. The epic launch. In the beginning was the music, but there was no one around to hear it. For a while, it seemed there was nothing new on the horizon. Announcing the latest achievement in home entertainment, the power of sight video, the power of sound, MTV Music Television. Say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. Okay, if you're from our era, yeah. then you know that that classic MTV soundbite. But if you're younger and you're listening, that's how MTV actually kicked off the debut of their channel. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you, I was I was I know the exact time and minute <laughs> and second where I was when I watched this was watched this thing. Where were you? I was with John Cannon, guitar player for Johnny Nine. We were in his uh, uh, TV room, like he was. His dad was a really um, wealthy lawyer, so they had this huge house, and they had, you know, back then, wow, just a TV room, wow, you know, mm-hmm. and state of the art stuff. And to be honest with you, when that thing kicked off, me and John were like, oh, whatever. <laughs> we were like, we didn't really care about it. It's like, let's go upstairs and listen to the tubes. And you had already been starting to play. And then it it became all about video, and the reason why we chose Patty Smythe because that she was so ingrained in that MTV look, and she she was she was a thing, man. She was also one of the best female vocalists of all time that I don't think anybody gives a lot of credit to. But well, I'm glad that you just did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Plus, she's nobody even realizes that she's seen background on probably every person's song from the 80s to 2000 in the studio for me the quintessential female rock girl you know i mean she just sure she was back then and then heading with that mtv theme where you started to have different genres coming in we'll just move into some missing persons giving a shout out to dave on this one Another great song I never want to play again. <laughs> okay, Dean. <laughs> you want to shout out to Dean? <laughs> now, we're playing a lot of these snippets because we're making our way, but um, as we get into your journey with your bands, but there's uh, something special about 
Missing Persons is that that's when the drummer first really got thrown out in the front. And didn't one of your bands do that? Yeah, there was a time when I played with my, are you talking about my drum set right on front of the stage? Yeah. And that, and wasn't one of the Johnny Nines or one of the other bands, you had a really good drummer in the band? Oh yeah, for sure. That was Larry Shibler. He, he definitely covered that stuff perfectly. We used to call him Larry LeBlur because his hands were so fast. <laughs> um, Keep those seatbelts on because we are going to get to that, but we're gonna, we're kind of doing a whole <laughs> thing with these snippets and then the MTV thing and how that kind of just molded and affected, you know, where you started to go. Um, and then we'll get to our classic segment. But before we do, here's another very underrated artist. Well respected by the musicians, but some of us have a little bit of uh, issue with her not being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet. Oh yeah, Pat Benatar. Pat Benatar. Neil Geraldo, one of my favorite guitar players. And this is actually a song that you do want to hear. Yeah. What was going through your mind when you heard these guitar solos? There needs no discussion ever about these guys. <laughs> they just are. <laughs> as soon as you stop playing this, you just put a period at the end of it. And that's it. <laughs> One of the coolest exercise things I've ever seen in my life was Neil Geraldo, how he exercises. He jumps rope on a plank. Wow. That's how he stays in shape.
period. <laughs> just put a period on that. Yeah, I don't think we even need to talk about that. Let's just put a period. But just jump into something else that we do need to talk about. I like saying your whole name. Rick Springfield. Do you have any more songs? Wait, I have one more. Oh, yeah? No shit. Oh, yeah, there you go. Three chords. That's how you fucking know. Three fucking chords. I would argue that you could guess it in one chord. There's the original. Oh, yeah. Jesse is a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Rick is a beast. He's been a good friend of mine. But lately something's changed. It ain't hard to define. Jesse's got himself a girl and I want to make her mine. And she's watching him with those eyes. Yeah, it came over right there. <laughs> Another period. <laughs> Gotta find a woman like that, Dana. And hear Tom Kelly back there singing. Who's Tom Kelly? He's just a background singer uh, in L.A. for I think he's passed away. I think he passed away in two, I don't know, 2010 or something like mm-hmm. that. I don't know, maybe earlier. But he was sang backgrounds on everybody's stuff, and he had this just pure high voice that could just mix with anybody. He just sang on everybody's records, and he was like the background singer along with. Patty Smythe, her as well, mm-hmm. and Richard Page, ultimately from Mr. Mister, he he sang on a lot of people's um, music, the backgrounds. And then there's records like with Rick Springfield where you get all three of those guys. You get Patty Smythe, Tom Kelly, and Richard Page singing on those songs. And there's just this grittiness to the harmonies, man. It's crazy. That's a pretty big buildup for our uh, musical influences, but we, we did that for a reason, just to get your general synopsis. And now we're going to go into the Nest Pod feature of What Did You First Buy? But before we do that, I'm releasing the new snippet on this episode. So it's going to be a little bit longer segment, but I'm going to give you the initial first two minutes of this. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to conclude, and we're going to figure out what did you first buy. Because uh, I want to know. Gotta take a little time A little time to get to know you better I better read between the lines Of all the music you might have purchased Music you may have been into 
This question I must find Of the music but when you were younger Okay, Dana. Since this is the debut of Jay Vocals with <laughs> with what with what I want to know what you first bought, uh-huh. I'm gonna give you another three minutes to reflect about that first hot cup of cocoa that you might have first bought, and I want you to think about that. And here we go. Sip it up. I'm gonna give you a bit more time. <laughs> A bit more time to reflect the music. Tell me this guy's what wearing a leopard print shirt, I know it. <laughs> Pop rock, or was it top 40? Really taking it out there to the end there. <laughs> I wanna know you 
Jay Vocals has given you five minutes to think about what you first bought. That's a bargain. That's a bargain. It's a Nest Pot debut, brother. Dana Brown, what was the music that you first bought? Hot chocolate, everyone's a winner. (laughs) Oh, man, come on. Hot chocolate, everyone's a winner. Did I nail the pitch on that? <laughs> I think you did. I think I did. <laughs> I, I heard you had some talent. A young man in the in the you know hard streets of Reading and at the local record store, and did you go pick up a forty-five or was it an album? What what did you buy? It was a forty-five, and I would go. Oh, it was Kmart. Ah, Kmart had a forty-five record section, mm-hmm. and I went in there, and that's where I get my forty-five. And what was it about that hot cup of cocoa that attracted you to buy that first that first cut? Oh, I was the vocal man. It was the vocal. Uh-huh. I mean, come on. I'm thinking Cameo copied them. <laughs> it could have been an influence. <laughs> just to give you a little bit of... Uh, no, I'm just saying, man. Give you a little bit of Wikipedia. Everyone's a Winner is the third single from the 1978 Hot Chocolate album by the same name. Mm-hmm. The single was released on March 4th, 1978 on Rack Records in the UK and Infinity Records in the US. It peaked at number 12 on the UK singles and number 6 on the US Billboard Hot 100. Yeah, should have been number 1. <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it was the band's second highest charting single in the US behind You Sexy Thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Earlier you mentioned Bell and James. And oh, yeah. I thought I would just pull this up really quick because it, it, it reminds me of this song as well. Portland, Oregon. Mm. Is that where they were out of? Yeah, well, Tacoma and Portland. Mm-hmm. They started in Tacoma and went to Portland. This album was great. full circle to your musical influences. Yeah. 
Okay, that's a pretty thorough influence. So now let's move into where you actually start becoming a, a musician, where you actually start playing. And is there anything else that you want to add as far as how you started to develop as a musician? What, what was the first instrument that you picked up and, and where you actually got your start? Well, the, the start was Doug Colosio, who ended up being the piano player for Merle Haggard mm-hmm. for years. He was one of my best friends, and he he would just come down to my house and bring me guitars. And we, me and him would start. He had two Honer amplifiers, and we would plug both guitar two guitars in. And this was before my brother Scott started buying me all the instruments that I could ever want or need. But he, Doug Colosio, was the one that started. He came down. And he's and. I think I think what it was is we believe it or not we ran extension cords and we were in our boat. Okay. In the summer, we were out in our boat on the trailer, but we were in our in the boat sitting on the seats. We had extension cords with our Honer amplifiers, and he was just starting to show me how to play, and I just picked it up extremely quickly. And then he was kind of like he's kind of the person that started to drive me like you're going to do this. And mm-hmm. that's kind of where it started with Doug Colosio. Sure. And I'm, I'm checking my notes here and I'm looking at my outline and the first, the first band that I have written down for you is imagine. And you were you 15 years old. It was a band uh, that was compiled of three guitar players. Yeah. All we did was April wine. <laughs> we did like a whole album of April wine and then repeated it. So let's just give him a little taste, a little 15 second snippet of April wine. What happened with the April yeah. wine? I guess it would be the, what would it be? A, not a quartet, but it'd be a triplet, right? What would you call three players? Well, we had other players, obviously. Mm-hmm. I, it was the first, I was 15 years old and I, and the drummer in the band was kind of a big drummer in town, but me and him just butted heads immediately just because I knew his head was bigger than his talent. <laughs> and, but the funniest part about it was we were playing, <laughs> we were like a garage band that was playing without, um, a bass player. We had three guitar players and no bass player. And then I remember after the first gig, first gig we played was in this garage where I met this girl, Tammy, who was just never thought she'd ever give me the time of day, but just cause I had a guitar on mm-hmm. that's where it all started right there. This girl was the hottest girl in school and she would never give me the time of day, but all of a sudden I had a guitar on and now Ooh. she does. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's how, it, that's how, that's how it works. You started to see some of that magic happening now. So you st- that's how it works right there. <laughs> Anyways, but I just remember John, I just remember John Cannon, who I ultimately get into a different band with later here coming up. But he's like, this is ridiculous. He's like, you're a horrible guitar player. You need to play bass. <laughs> oh, so he kept you in line. So- <laughs> and did you actually make, like, did you make the shift? Right there was the shift. Yeah, it was like we had... It's like I was the worst of the three guitar players, so it's like I had to go to bass. <laughs> I was shunned to bass guitar. How was that transition for you? Think about it. I was like, all I ever listened to was like Ohio Players, Earth and Fire, mm-hmm. Funk. Yeah, this is where I got to be. Sure. Not only was I the worst 
guitar player, but yes, it was a natural transition to bass. Also, the other question that I that is curious to me is that how did it work for you? Then you started playing, like you mentioned, you know, Tammy saw you. And how did it work for you to become a live musician as well, where you had to work on your chops to play live? Because at this point in time, you're only like 16 years old, right? Yeah, but you have to understand that coming up here very shortly, within the year, John Cannon was a uh, classically trained piano player, and he was our, you know, coming up here soon. He was our guitar player, our main guitar player, and you know, a year later is Johnny Nine, and you know, he's a classically trained musician. And even though you know, you just you just learn a lot very quickly around people like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in my once again, I'm referring to my notes. Is that I have written in here the John Cannon, who you mentioned, classically trained. And you mentioned Van Halen earlier. He learned Eruption, the famous guitar solo by Eddie Van Halen, in 24 hours. Oh, yeah, it was done. The next day, he had it all down. <laughs> and then the funny part about it was when we were in Johnny Nine, when we start, when we were in that band, and he learned that. Albert, again, that drummer that mm-hmm. I saw as a baby. Sure. John learned that Eruption solo, and Albert, I remember Albert, Albert's comment. He was like, well, what the hell are we going to do with that? I mean, when are you going to play that? <laughs> it's like, well, we're just going to stop our show and... You play that? And then the other name that you mentioned, Doug Calicio, he also went on to play with Merle Haggard. Yeah, no, yeah, because Merle Haggard's from Northern California. He had a house on Shasta Lake where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, Merle Haggard, we all had kind of ties to Merle Haggard. Uh, Doug, obviously, closer ties. But the cool thing, one day, Merle Haggard, uh, Doug was over at his studio as a young kid and and. Merle Haggard was always doing this with musicians. I mean, he was a really good guy when it came to bringing people along. Mm-hmm. He took a whole big stack of ragtime records, you know, probably 25 ragtime records, and he, he dropped them in front of Doug and said, when you can play all of these songs, you can be in my band. And so Doug just bared down over the years and just learned all that stuff and eventually became his piano player. And I think uh, the crowning moment for me, like as a friend of his, was seeing him. He was on the American Music Awards with, uh, I forget what year it was, but Merle Haggard did a duo with Jewel, mm-hmm. did a song with Jewel, and Doug was the accompanying uh, accompanying piano player on that. And I I felt pretty cool for him. Oh, yeah, what a story. Um, but, you know, he's, he, he's toured with Merle for years and before Merle passed away. And, and I think he's, you know, I'm not sure what he's doing now, but I think he's with the... Uh, was it the John, uh, Johnson brothers or I don't know. Mm-hmm. I haven't talked to him in a while, but it's, he's, he's still doing it. You know, he's still in the country world and he still stays to his ragtime roots. He just loves playing ragtime. So, you know, and going through that big buildup that we did with all the music, just to, I'm going to play another 17 second snippet of this to get you back to Albert Presidio. So that's the guy that you saw when you were walking down the road as a young man, right? Yeah, not a young man. I mean, a young kid. I mean, I was like probably eight or nine. And the thing about Albert was the way he shaped me and stuff as far as my bass playing went. And he ended up being kind of a father figure because I moved in with him for a little bit and lived in his apartment with him. He was the first drummer that, well, obviously, one of the first, he was the first drummer for me. I mean, aside from that one other guy Mm -hmm. uh, in the band, Imagine. But Albert was the drummer. Your influences are amazing when they hit you the right way at 
at first. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And Albert Presidio was a clock. If he started a song in a certain tempo, it stayed that way the whole entire song before there was anything like a click track or drummers following some sort of sync or anything like that. Albert was just, you know, much like Josh is now in my current band. Mm-hmm. I call them the Termin- the Terminators because they just... <laughs> yeah. It's nice when you have a drummer that never fluctuates in time because you can just really concentrate on playing the bass. Get in the pocket. That's what he taught me when I was young. I mean, he was just that guy. When you were telling that story, it just kind of reminds me of that. Some of the things that we take for granted these days is back then there wasn't any MIDI or time clocks. It was all just human. You know, you had to play it. So when you had somebody with that extreme talent, you recognized it. Yeah. All right, buddy. Another influence here. We are getting through your band, so we're to Johnny Nine. And remember, you're still only about 16 or 17, right? And then this comes into play. (laughs) Yeah, 16, yeah. Wow. to that guitar tone yeah with only two fingers wally stockard only had two fingers and he played solos like that so turn and walk away the lp the baby's on the edge chrysalis records the lone single peaking at 42 on the billboard 100 and probably number one in your heart oh john Waite, man that's the big you know john <laughs> Waite. he's the he's the man one of the best singers in rock and roll history and how big of an influence was that on you it was huge i mean I, I literally i literally bought this album twice because i actually wore it out to where you there was no high end left on it i could change the needle but there was no high frequency left on the album mm-hmm. i actually bought it twice because i played this album so so much and then how did that kind of affect the whole uh johnny nine how did that affect johnny nine and hey buddy can you spare a nine yeah that was one of our <laughs> flyers yeah <laughs> the, the thing of it was is that's that turned you know, there, there started to become like keyboards that could play a piano sound without having to have a piano and, you know, things like that. And Doug bought, God, I forget what the first board was he bought, but so Doug, we were a three piece, John Cannon, uh, Albert Presidio and me. And that, and also the thing of it was, is so when we started doing these baby tunes, I started singing all of them. And so mm-hmm. all of a sudden now I've like became, this is where I became the singer because I love John Waite and it was like, this is what I want to do. And I, and so now I'm actually the full blown singer of the band at this point. And we bring on Doug, who's my lifelong friend, bring him in. There's new keyboards involved. Now we're able to play all these songs. You, you know what I mean? And not have to have a big piano on stage or what, you know what I mean? 
we're able sure. to play play these kind of songs and and so it just opened up a world to us started to play Huey Lewis and the new songs and anyway and I have down here that you mentioned that you opened up for Huey Lewis and the news yeah we did in Medford Oregon I call it the Medford experience because then uh, you got into a house band. You were a house band for a club there, and yeah, I'm, I met a lot of I met a lot of people in Medford. Man, Medford had a great music scene back then. Um, there was a club upstairs called the Manhattan Rose, and if you were like the band, you got to play that place. It was owned by a guy named uh, Johnny Green. Uh, he had a band called Johnny Green and the Green Man. They wrote the Batman theme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I be, kind of became friends with him. How much money do you think he's made off of that? Well, I don't know, but I know he, had, he I knew back then he had two houses in the Virgin Islands. Enough said. Actually, that guy saved my life. Really? Was there some malfeasance at Mingles? So I'm playing downstairs at Mingles. There's you know two two nightclubs, top and bottom, and I'm playing downstairs. And I go out of my the parking lot on my break, and this guy walks up to me and points a revolver right in my face. Ooh. Pointed a revolver at me, and I think he thought I was messing around with his girlfriend or something, which wasn't the case. I mean, and actually now that I remember it. That was the time I was seeing uh, Ursula Guderian. Mm. There'd be no way I was fooling around on her at that point. But anyway, I'm like, I am not doing that. I don't know who you think I am, but I am not. And at the same time, I'm kind of looking because, you know, I grew up with guns on a ranch and stuff when I was younger. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm looking down in the magazine section of the revolver and I'm like, okay, yeah, God damn it. It's loaded. You know, so I'm kind of looking at the same time, but it, I'm like, hey, I'm not the guy you're talking about. I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy. And so and the guy that wrote the Batman theme is actually Batman. He comes running. He he was in his office upstairs looking out the window, and he knew the guy. You want to know who else had a window in their club? Tillman <laughs> in Roadhouse when Dalton, the badass cooler <laughs> in the business, came in. Right there, he had a window looking over his club, right? Escort this gentleman to the door. Who is that guy? He's good. He's real good. The name is Dalton. When dealing with powerful criminal elements, one can never be too well prepared. Johnny ran out in the parking lot and he knew the guy that was pointing a gun at me. He comes running downstairs, mm-hmm. runs out. He's like, hey, so and so. I don't know what's going on right here, but I know it's not what you think it is. And he like diffused the whole entire situation. Strangest thing that ever happened in my life to have a stranger that I knew nothing about point a gun in my face. But And is this the first time that you're really starting to travel as a musician? Now, Medford, Oregon would be in the middle of the state of Oregon and you being in Northern California. How would you get to these it's, gigs? It's, yeah, Medford, Medford's kind of the, the, the southern part of Oregon. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, we would we started traveling. We had a trailer. Oh, yes. I had a Pontiac Catalina Safari wagon with a 490 in it. <laughs> I could go up to Siskiyou's at 75 miles an hour pulling a 12-foot trailer. <laughs> Full of gear. Everybody loved my safari wagon. Everybody had room in the back. It was like it was like a 16 passenger 
van, only like a wagon. I mean, it was, you know, it was awesome. And, uh, yeah, one time I hit a, I, I painted deer slayer. It was like this brown rusted Brown. <laughs> and I hit a deer one time doing like Ooh. 75 and it just like exploded and nothing happened to the car. Wow. Just Google Pontiac Catalina Safari wagon and you give yourself a treat. You'll check it out. Yeah. And then I end up just getting on the hood and in, in black paint and painting deer slayer on the front of the car. <laughs> and that was its name. Are you still about 17 or 18 at this time? Deer slayer time is still maybe 18. Okay, so one more question to ask you about uh, Johnny Nine. Did the casino story happen? Oh God, yeah, the tribal chief. Yeah, no, that was a that was a that was a gig with Johnny Nine. That was young. That was when we were still three piece. I was like sixteen, and the chief. I'm not going to say what tribe it is, but it's a over near sure. the coast of California, Crescent City area. The, his daughter, who was stunningly beautiful mm -hmm. um just took a liking to me once again it's that young man with that guitar bass strapped on him now this is going to sound completely untrue but i cannot make up this story i was about on the the point of not being able to leave they were not going to let me leave because the girl wanted like wanted me to stay there <laughs> so this was a hell's angels gig <laughs> mm -hmm. this was a hell's angels gig we were playing out in this flatbed trailer so all this stuff went down. I, t I mean, the, I, on the breaks, I had talked to the girl, you know, and she was super beautiful and, you know, we kind of hit it off, but I mean, I wasn't trying to marry her or anything, but mm -hmm. anyway, so now the tribe's involved and they're like, okay, well, she wants him. And I just remember John and Albert going, oh, this is kind of getting serious. And I'm like starting to think I might not be able to leave, you know, and <laughs> So anyways, but so Dog, the, one of the main Hells Angels guys, again, can't make this up. His name was Dog. Um, they put me, <laughs> the bounty hunter. they snuck me into the back of a Chevy. They, they stuck me in the back of a Chevy truck behind the seat. So I literally was smashed behind the folding seat of a Chevy truck. <laughs> and that's how they snuck me out down this gravel dirt road in the middle of the mountains that seemed like it took four hours to get off of dirt road. And yeah, I spent the whole time behind that seat. But you got out, right? I did get out, yeah. All right, you escaped. It was a weird, it's the weirdest thing, one of the weirdest things I've ever experienced in my life. And then what yeah. happened with Johnny Nine? Did you just say, as, as most bands do at some point in time, was it just time to retire? Yeah, I think John, um, John rejoined in theater, but I think John was done. You know, his dad wanted him to be a lawyer like he was, and... Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he was just done at the moment. And I think I think I was I was also pushing in directions that John wasn't comfortable with. I like me and him had like bands like the Tubes, but the Tubes were funky. One of the funkiest bands ever, funkiest white guys on planet Earth. You know the Tubes, but he was going more towards a heavy rock thing, and mm -hmm. I just didn't want to do that. And so I think we just and Albert also was like, you know, I've been playing music for forty years, and I just don't want to do it anymore. And I'm, you know, he's 40 and I'm 17, you know? <laughs> yeah, just going into your 20s, right? Yeah. 17, 18, yeah, exactly. So did that, that actually probably created the Young America years then, right? Coming out of that? 
Yeah, because you know, I, I hate to I hate to say this, but I mean, I'm 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 young. I'm super young. I could have it could have been 14 when I started the April Wine thing, or the okay. Because now that we're talking, Young America, I remember hitchhiking to Young America with my saxophone and my bass. I think I was just turned 18. And how did that come about? Because now you just mentioned that you were playing saxophone. So how did that come about? Doug had dropped off a, Doug Closio had dropped off a saxophone to me. Mm -hmm. And I'd always had it. um, My parents let me live out in a trailer outside of the house. Like I had my own little RV. Mm -hmm. And so I was living out there. And so I didn't have to uh, annoy anybody with me learning how to play the sax. So Mm -hmm. I could just sit out in that trailer and just be horrible. (laughs) And so... Actually, I would still, even because it was still loud, so what I would do is I would stuff socks. I would stuff uh, socks down the barrel of it so that it would mute it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just started, you know, playing saxophone for fun. And then, but I still didn't think I could play it professionally, even though I knew I could play bass professionally, you know, mm-hmm. and possibly guitar. You know, um, Jim, uh, the, the triplets with Young America, um, Jim Powell, who is now a awesomely kind of famous pastor of a church. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jim Powell, I had met, he was in the rival high school and I always thought he was super talented. I mean, he was like a, he was like a piano, you know, genius. Mm-hmm. He was just a, a kid star, you know? So anyway, he called me and said, Hey, I, you know, I got a band going down in Corning, California. So it wasn't necessarily Chico at first. It was Corning first. Okay. And so I said, yeah, I'll come down. And so anyways, I, I literally hitchhiked down. I was upset with my stepfather at the time. So I hitchhiked down to um, uh, Corning, California and got onto this, <laughs> our drummer in the band, his father was like heir to like the Eastern Indian throne or something. I mean, he was just worth gazillion dollars, right? Okay. Uh, he had these fighting cocks that were worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars and he would fly to South America and have these competitions. Now, not necessarily the most cool thing nowadays, sure. but back then, and he had like thousands of these chickens on this farm. Anyways, he gave us the spare ranch house. He gave it to the band to, or it was our, it was our band house. The first band house I ever lived in. Okay. And you mentioned that there was three brothers in the band. So there were triplets, right? Yeah. Joe, Jim, and Steve. And how did it hook up to where you met another band named Leo Swift? Because then you started to, did you open up for them or you just, they were rival bands and you got to know them? No, not rival bands at all. I mean, like, this is, that's so funny people say rival bands, but um, I've never believed in that philosophy. I mean, my philosophy my whole entire life was as many good bands as there can be, Mm -hmm. that means we're all making money and the money's going to stay there for us to make money. So sure. there needs to be really good bands always, you know, I used to get really mad at seeing horrible bands. It's like they shouldn't be playing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we were playing down there and I wasn't necessarily happy with the band because Joe, the guitar player, God love him. I mean, I would go have a beer with him and we would laugh our ass off right now, but he was just terrible. Mm-hmm. And Steve, the bass player was pretty good, um, but he was just weird like, I mean, when I say somebody's weird, that's weird. Okay. So anyway, but Jim, I was, I was tying myself to Jim, you know, I was tying myself to Jim because Jim was so talented. And I mean, some of the great stories that me and Jim have is like, we'd be in the middle of nowhere, no money playing a gig somewhere or whatever. And me and Jim would just go downtown and like find a bar and he would get on the piano and we would start singing songs like Billy Joel songs. Mm-hmm. 
and we would make like eighty dollars in tips, you know. And Sweet. you know, me and Joe, me and Jim used to always laugh, like, "Yeah, well, we're eating tonight," you know. It's like. <laughs> So the players from Leo Swift then, and to give a time frame is we opened up for them. Is how I met them. Yeah. Okay, and then Howard Jones was really big around that time, an artist, which is a, more of a new wave type of thing. If you think of like Thomas Dolby, so let's play one of their songs. Yeah, and Le- and Leo Leo Swift was Leo Swift was opening up for them. Oh, okay. So they so Leo Swift actually opened up for Howard Jones. Yeah. And exactly. And you, they probably had a little bit of a run, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here we go. Here's a little Leo Swift. Keyboard bass, left hand. all over it so you met some players from leo swift and rod who was a guitar player for leo swift became a really good friend you know bandmates for years right yeah for sure and what's interesting is one of their you know this is kind of where the sound thing starts well so all during young america mm-hmm. i was the sound guy all during johnny nine i was our sound guy but it wasn't till leo swift when i met dave stevens their sound guy and they had all the you know, they all, they had the the most newest gear. And I met Dave Stevens who ended up being Bobby Brown's monitor guy for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's when I kind of first got interested in like serious audio. Cause it's like, I saw Dave Stevens, they had bought a Rankus Hines smart system and I'm like, okay, sound can be way, way better than it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. And so I met, you know, Dave Stevens, uh, on sound for Leo Swift. I met Rod, guitar player who's been a lifelong friend of mine, played with Miley Cyrus and You know, Dana, I'm gonna jump I'm gonna jump around a little bit because speaking of Rod that he is now in Las Vegas, residing in Las Vegas and playing in a band is it a band called Phoenix there? Yeah. 
Yeah, there, it's a, it was a band started by uh, the guitar player for Aerosmith as a side project. Sure, and we'll circle back and we'll play some more songs with Rod featured in your one of your bands. Oh, okay. But let's let's fire off this cut and what it's from. It it starts with a guitar solo from Journey that that Rod is playing in a cover band, The Phoenix, in Las Vegas, and then it goes into the Miley Cyrus performance that you have a story about that as well. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. That's Rod. Phoenix. Yeah. Greatest solo ever written. Don't want to hear it again. This year's been uh, quite a wild ride for me and Miley, and I couldn't be prouder as a daddy to make this next statement. This next singer, not only one heck of an entertainer and a great actress, <laughs> she's fine. also my little girl. Give it up, Miley Cyrus. This has also got Greg Fox from Ten Bulls playing piano. Oh, another bandmate of yours. Yep. I gotta keep trying I gotta keep my head high There's always gonna be another mountain I'm always gonna wanna make it So if you look that up on YouTube, you will see Rod predominantly featured. Is that they were all dressed in white, and it was a performance for that particular award show. And you have a story about that. Yeah, Rod called me because um, <laughs> Rod called me um, early that morning and was like, "Dude, can you get on a plane? Uh, I might need you to come down here and play bass for the show." And <laughs> uh, apparently, the Taylor Swift had taken the bass player away from the band in kind of a weird way. They, they became, they were dating or something. Mm -hmm. And so they lost their bass player. And so they ended up finding, you know, somebody to fill in, but it was like, I was almost on a plane running down there just to play a one song. Oh man. Epic. It's been uh, quite a wild ride for me and Miley. We'll get back to Rod, but man, I got to see where we're at right here. So after young America, came kind of ran its course oh yeah and then and we, we we missed the we i'm sorry we missed the opening for toto oh opening for toto and those were also sound influ uh, influences for me it was like yeah you know i was like that was the first time i saw schubert sound systems group and i was like intrigued i was like oh wow this is a whole nother level i mean toto sounded it was it was unreal i mean another level and so just for some clarification then, you what band were you in that was opening for Toto? Young America. Okay, so Young America. And where did that 
transpire? Was it in California area? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was actually Marysville, Yuba City, the armpit of California. Okay, <laughs> well put. <laughs> so then you came into another band where you know now Rod becomes a guitar player in this band, and then another good friend of yours, Shannon. The band's name was Theater, right? John Cannon came back first and was our guitar player, and we put together. Okay, we put together a, a mixture of people from Johnny Nine had many different. John, like I said, Johnny Nine went on longer than I think we think it did because we had a girl singer, Brandy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the culmination of like all these previous bands, I finally got together all the people out of all these other bands that I, all the people I didn't want and all the people I did want. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I finally got them together in theater and we put that band together in theater with uh, Brandy singing and me singing. And uh, now Rob's off doing his thing with Leo Swift, opening for Howard Jones and so he's not mm-hmm. in the band yet, and we had John Cannon back in the band. And remember, I, I think I told you when we had t- uh, talks that uh, Leo Swift had been backed by, you know, the two keyboard players were backed by Will Littlejohn. Yeah, I think I'm taking a, I'm taking a look at my fun fact here. Is it Florence Littlejohn, and was she an attorney? Yeah, her and her husband were both attorneys, and Will Littlejohn was one of the keyboard players for Leo Swift, and they had massive financial backing by them. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening is we ended up getting pretty good massive backing from the Little Johns um, in theater. Sure. So we took out a huge sound system, huge lighting system. We had a bus, <laughs> and we were like touring through the touring through the whole Midwest. We went from Sacramento to Minnesota and back. I mean, it was like we were just always... Our home was pretty much Billings, Montana. That's where we stayed in the middle. But yeah, so we're out there for quite a while. Rod comes in a little bit later than that, but we can talk about, you know, theater until Rod comes in. But yeah, we had full sounded lighting. and One fact that I love about Florence Littlejohn, it sounds like it actually could be a band name. Welcome, Florence Littlejohn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you mentioned Billings. And you had a truck for audio and a truck for lighting. That's how, and back then, that's how big your stage show was. It was huge. It was massive. These clubs would seat a thousand people, 1,200, 1,400 people. Yeah, it was kind of the time. It was that era. And you mentioned that something happened at one of the clubs that there was a big fire and your trucks got damaged and your gear and, and FLJ had more gear out to you like in a week or something. Yeah, it was Twin Falls, uh, Twin Falls, Idaho. Um, the club owner decided mm-hmm. to burn the club down for insurance with all of our stuff in it. <laughs> Sounds like a movie. Yeah, no, he did. He well, he ended up getting caught for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he got busted for it, but um, as as he should have. But she went out. She went to God. I believe it. I believe it was. It could have been the one of the first guitar centers, Sacramento. Mm. Back in the day, I think it might have been. FLJ was on her game. She had the whole thing insured. Yeah. So she went out and she bought you all new gear. Oh, yeah. We had it like two weeks later. We had a full PA system, brand new uh, JBL system, lighting. It, it, yeah. It, she drove it out in two new trucks. Wow. And uh, yeah. And so, and then we, we were back, uh, we were back doing it again. Okay. Billings, Montana. Oh. Now, I'm not even going to give a lead into this. I'm just going to play it. And then I want you to chime in, all right? <laughs> what are the odds on Lincoln Hawks? <laughs> 20 to 1, pal. Be a long shot. Hawks, let's go. The world meets nobody halfway. Remember that. I don't have a father, sir. The world 
has always bet against Lincoln Hawks. This guy's nothing. Why'd you leave us? But it won't happen again. What my grandson found, I don't care how you do it, do it. But a winner never listens to the odds. Whatever happens, I want you to stay with him. Where do we end up? Together is all I can guarantee. You ain't got a prayer in Vegas. You never had anything, so you have nothing to lose. All I want to do is hurt him, cripple him, get him off the table. All I care about is you. You're my boy, you understand? You all beats nobody halfway. Now is the time to do for yourself. I want you. Sylvester Stallone, over the top. The 1987 <laughs> release, over the top. Wow. What was going on in Billings? Oh, big memories there, man. So Billings was our, our hub. We stayed in Billings. We had just massive friends there, a lot of girlfriends, a lot of girlfriends in Billings, Montana. <laughs> and A lot. <laughs> I'm just saying, we were reaping the rewards of uh, of being a good band. Anyway, living that rock star life. We were living it, man. But it was our hub, and we, you know, I'm not just girls, but just good friends. You know, tons of good friends. Mm-hmm. And so we we would stay there in between gigs, and you know, and, and like if you know if we had to play there, well, there was two clubs. There was two clubs in Billings. One was kind of competing clubs. One was called Grandma's, and one was called the Casino Club. And we. You know, the the hipsters kind of always played grandmas, but we were like, yeah, it was just something about the casino club. It was like, we were kind of always more working class musicians. And so we're like, you know, let's just, because we had a choice. We could have played grandmas, but we just, we we chose to play casino club. We just felt more comfortable there. And um, God, just a, just a good time there, man. There was a, a bartender there that had a metal plate in his head. And... <laughs> it was Thomas Schmenger, and he uh, can't make that name up. And he would literally, people would like try to steal booze or something, or lean across the bar and grab a bottle, and he would just headbutt them and knock them out. <laughs> that happened more than one time that I I witnessed. There was gunshots. We had we had a person come in and open fire one time in the club and take out two of our amplifiers. Whoa! You you hear about the school shootings and whatnot in the news, but that was pretty rare for that point in time in the the mid '80s, right? Yeah, I mean, this guy was. I mean, Billings, Montana. I mean, it's kind of kind of the wild wild west a little bit still back back then. Yeah, the wild wild west. So how did this Sylvester Stallone over the top? What happened? What happened with that? Was he actually in the casino? Yeah, that was that was great. So they filmed, uh, so what they did was we played this multiple times, like in three years, we played on the same night, you know, same weeks that they were having this arm wrestling competition. Mm-hmm. And some of the best arm wrestlers in the world would come to this Billings, the casino club for this Billings, Montana arm wrestling competition. And they're all the, the, the big wigs of arm wrestling, you know, any, mm-hmm. you know, nowadays you could probably Google it and find it all, but they would come there and they would have this, well, it ended up that year Stallone was doing this movie. So they did a lot of the filming during the days that we were there for this movie, filming the preliminaries of like the arm wrestling matches. But the funniest thing, man, I mean, the Stallone thing is whatever. It was a goofy movie, but the funniest thing of all was now we have history with this because we've been there three years in a row when they're doing this, 
or two years, at least two years in a row, mm-hmm. when they're doing this contest, there'd be this hay baling, seven foot, kind of kinky, blonde haired, hay baling, rancher slash murderer. I mean, I don't know. He looked like a murderer, but, <laughs> but technically he wasn't. <laughs> I've never seen, I've never seen a pair of overalls this large in my life. It was like a pair of overalls for a Mack truck. <laughs> and he was, and he was wearing them without a shirt. Oh, nice. And so this guy would come in, he'd sit at the bar all day long, drink beer. Again, can't make this story up. He'd sit at the bar all day long and drink beer. And then when the final person had won the final match, he would go over and beat them. <laughs> and then he would grab his trophy. Didn't want any part of the movie. No, no. And, and they would never make him do the preliminaries because he was that good. I mean, he was that tough. I mean, he was that strong. And dude, he beat he, the guy, the actual guy that's in the Stallone movie. Mm-hmm. He beat that guy in about 0.5 seconds. <laughs> and then he grabs his money. That's over the top, brother. He grabbed his money, grabbed his trophy and... Off he goes, and nobody sees him for another year. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's literally awesome. A little bit of background on, because I know that this is probably before a lot of people's time. Over the top, released in 1987, one year after the epic 1986 Cobra. Oh, Cobra, love it, love it. Starring Stallone, aka Marion Cobretti. <laughs> Deke De Silva, age 35, <laughs> born and raised New York City, occupation cop one man can bring the world to its knees and only one man can stop him universal pictures presents sylvester stallone in nighthawks billy d williams as matthew fox rutger hour as wolfgar wolfgar it's just stallone man it's stallone what do you want it's just epic that was released in 81 yeah so billings montana you got your band going on with the, is that kind of where theater ran its course? And then did you go into another band after that? Yeah, the band broke up in, well, this is kind of a funny story. Um, Randy Pratt, uh, who was the drummer for the band at the time, and he was wanting to quit. He ended up being the major drum guy, uh, purchaser for Sweetwater Online. Mm. Uh, he recently passed away, but, you know, Randy was funny guy. He was a fun guy, but he got kind of upset with me. Uh, so we're in like Dickinson, North Dakota. He actually picked me up and put me in a dryer and turned it on. Ooh. Yeah. Like a commercial dryer. How long were you in the dryer? Uh, I, longer than I wanted to be. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. Longer than I wanted to be. And then Shannon, <laughs> you know, our main singer pulls me out of the shower. We're kind of all arguing. Arguing. I mean, he did it kind of in a fun way, but it was kind of a mean way too. Mm-hmm. And that was like the end of the band. It was like we kind of all just kind of had it. And so it was in Dickinson, North Dakota. And I end up, we ended up, me and Shannon ended up driving the truck with all the equipment Florence Littlejohn had purchased for us. Um, we drove it like deadheaded. FLJ. We deadheaded like from Dickinson, North Dakota to Sacramento, like straight through. So it runs its course, right? And that was basically the end of theater. And then I, in the notes here, I see that, and I mean, there's a lot of bands for you to cover. I mean, you are going down a musical journey here. So then you get into another band with Rod, and I think it says Victor Hawking here, and that was a band named Paris, named after DJ Paris D, I assume. Yeah, but Victor, Victor was the singer. Victor, Victor was the singer of Leo Swift that you heard earlier. Okay. After the theater, I went. I said, I'm bolting. 
I'm bolting to Seattle. I just made it, I made it, I, I don't know why, but I said, I'm going to Seattle. I'm, 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 I'm going there. And I left without anybody and I get up here. No, I'm sorry. I didn't necessarily leave. No. So basically Rod was living in Seattle and he said, come to Seattle. See, I did not know that. So Rod kind of gave you the first invite to say, come on, come up, come on up to the Emerald City, come up to Seattle. Yeah, come up to Seattle. So it was Rod. And so we put together a band called Paris uh, with actually, I'm sorry, with Randy Pratt. Randy Pratt decided not to not quit playing. I think he just hated our keyboard player. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) he decided to come to Seattle. Randy Pratt was our drummer. Uh, the guy who ended up running Sweetwater online, he ended up being our drummer. And just so people understand what Sweetwater is, it's a huge online ordering, almost like an Amazon for musical instruments. For musical equipment, yeah. Been around forever. We come up here, and uh, I'm living with, I'm actually living with Rod and his rich in-laws in Redmond, Washington. And I ended up moving, <laughs> I ended up moving down to their, they had a, nicely it was kind of weird it was a nicely built out apartment above a horse barn so i moved into that dude are are you dalton in roadhouse or what's going on yeah that's a lot like it was man it was like this really cool built out apartment above a a horse barn and so i moved into that so we started paris and we're playing you know this is a time period of like um say la vie robbie neville um, <laughs> yeah. um, we're playing, you know, song, you know, songs from that album, Victor, rest, you know, God rest his soul. Victor died of cancer about eight years ago. Mm. And then Mark, our, our keyboard player. Now, now we're getting into, you know, we're, we're, we're hardcore sequencing, you know, and, and doing stuff like that. And so, well, you know, something I wanted to touch base on is I think which reverse, which ends up being have something to do with zero to zero is I think, I don't think that Terry or Dave or Dan or any of those guys back then realized that, you know, with me being around Toto and uh, Leo Swift and the sequencing thing and, the, you know, the, the you know, a lot of parts in a song, it really led that education really led to me being the sound man for them because... Because mm-hmm. you understood it. Yeah. I knew how to mix that stuff, you know. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, so we're... Let's go back here. We're at Paris. I'm sorry, I kind of lost my lost my. Yeah. So, so just a a little a little bit about Paris is that we don't have any music for Paris. Yeah. Since you mentioned Robbie Neville and Say La Vie, that kind of puts me right in the mindset of of what that sound is. And then you kind of move into another area, which is another important band in your life because the name of the band is Ten Bulls, and. You can touch a little bit about what that story means. It's the story of Ten Bulls, which is Eastern philosophy. Yeah, it's it's the I mean the story of Ten Bulls, the Eastern philosophy. It's like you you know you you lay with the bull, you walk with the bull, you learn to walk with the bull, and and it's just ten levels of higher consciousness, basically, essentially is. Um, mm-hmm. But what it ended up being is what happened is I was playing in down in Spanaway, believe it or not, and. Roger Fisher, I believe it was Roger Fisher, DeRozier, and uh, Greg Fox came in and saw me playing bass. And they mm-hmm. came up and said, hey, you want to go be in a band? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I'd love it. And because I wasn't in Paris very long. I hadn't been up here very long. I don't even, we'd only played like three or four gigs. So I'd only lived in Seattle maybe two mm-hmm. months before Roger Fisher from Heart. And, you know, those guys came out and 
came up and said, Hey, you want to be in the band? And they said, we have one other guy we're looking at, which is really funny. You're, you know, when you're here in a minute, mm-hmm. the other guy that they were looking at when I got to the rehearsal or got to the audition was Johnny Bayless. Another, you know, local musician that a lot of our friends have played with. Yeah. Legend, man. The legend. He's a great bass player. Um, so it was between me and Johnny and I ended up getting a gig, which I could later, you know, in life poke fun at Johnny for, even though he's a much better bass player than I am. Mm-hmm. I think it was just back then, I think I got the gig because I was actually writing with them. I, I was actually, mm-hmm. there's four or five of the songs, which I'll have soon for you if we do this ever again. And you mentioned that there was a connection to Heart, of course, with the Ten Bulls, and then another person that you've uh, remained really good friends with, uh, you know, just on a personal level and professional level was Steve Steer. How did Steve Steer come into play with Ten Bulls? Yeah, Steve Steer is a huge influence on me as far as audio goes because he taught me, I think what Steve Steer taught me, so he was the engine, when I went into the audition at the, on the soundstage, which I think became, it's in Redmond, I think it might have became Bad Animals, I don't know. But he was the engineer when I, when I was doing my audition and he was like one of the first guys I met. And I met Steve Steer and became lifelong friends with him. But as far as sound engineering goes with Steve, he was the first guy, he was the first guy that told me, like, why not? Yeah, why not mm-hmm. put reverb on the whole mix? It'll sound like an auditorium. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, he was, you know, okay. he, <laughs> yeah. he just, there was no rules when it came to sound, when it came to Steve Steer. I mean, threw the rules out the window. And I, I was really glad that I learned that from him. Oh, cool. Uh, we don't have any Ten Bowls music, but if we do, we will we'll slip it in right here. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so do you want to? Do you now want to move? Because here's another band on your journey on the road is City Kids. Yeah. Then you become a pretty integral part of City Kids. Yeah. So what? What? And how did that all play into? Well, because so here's the deal. So we, I was in Ten Bowls, and I loved the band. We went out and tour. We played some of the most amazing live shows I've probably ever played in my life. You know, you can say all you want about Roger Fisher. He's not, sometimes he's not the greatest player live in the studio. He's magic. Mm -hmm. He's amazing. Wizard. Yeah. Uh, No pun intended. No pun intended. Magic man. But he's great. I mean, he's, he's unreal in the studio live. You know, Mm -hmm. anyway, we had a great band. Uh, We had, at that time, uh, DeRozier went to go play for Richard Marks. And so we had Jay Douglas in the band, so in Ten Bowls. Mm, which is a local drummer. Played for... Uh, yeah, now playing with Chapter, chapter five. 5. And there's another connection. Uh, I think John Bayless was also playing with Chapter 5. Yep. He might have just recently stopped. I think that now Danny Jensen is playing yeah, with Yeah, uh, I think Dan's playing with him now. We'll make that circle to zero to zero. But before we do, let's get into some City Kids. <sighs> That's Dana Brown on vocals. Ooh, 
Oh, what a joker. <laughs> I'm feeling it, dude. It's taking me back. Oh, I feel my throat hurting right now. <laughs> you gotta get me! You gotta get me! that's coming out of seattle washington that's city kids now dana i want you to take a deep breath i want i want you to take a deep breath i want you to think about this while i kind of put my own little spin on this okay so who could forget because that that's a white that's a that's a cover that you were doing still the night which was by a band called Whitesnake, and if you were in the mid-80s, you knew David Coverdale, but you can't get the vision of Tawny Catan out of your head in a white negligee Oh yeah. on top of white and black Jaguars in the classic video, which we all saw, Here I Go Again. That was you singing it live. Do you know where that performance was from? <laughs> yeah, it was a Saratoga trunk. <laughs> in fact, believe it or not, Dave... Dave and Terry were out that night. Uh, they didn't see that, but oh. Dave and Terry were out that night. Um, this is when they were looking for a singer or whatever. But Evan Sheely was always was, was also there that night from Q5, which is a whole other story. But sure, and in the outline, so whichever way you want to go, I'm totally cool with it. But I do have a feature from Q5, which is called "Living on the Borderline," a small snippet. Right. So, did you go from City Kids into Q5? And it was something that I remember we talked about it briefly that they wanted you to write some songs or something was going on with that. No, I went from during City Kids. I, I, I Evan Sheely wanted me to try out to be their singer. Mm -hmm. And I did not want to do that because I knew I mean, I just knew I couldn't sing their old stuff. But he just pressed me and pressed me. Evan just pressed me and pressed me until I went into the studio with Floyd Rose and started recording. Mm -hmm. It was just a short period of time. I recorded, um, they had written a bunch of songs with Joe Lynn Turner, you know, obviously Rainbow, Deep Purple okay. guy. Um, and so I just didn't know what they wanted from me, man. I went in the studio and I mean, I wish I still had these recordings. They were really cool. Terry will probably remember this. Terry uh, Hildebrand will probably remember this. Mm -hmm. I know Art Antonio does because Art tried to chase the guy down. But a lot of my live recordings for a lot of my live bands... <laughs> I had taken to Vancouver at Richards on Richards. I had taken my red Toyota forerunner up there and I had a bag of tapes and I was going to go through my tapes and like kind of see where I was at with all the history of my music. Well, when we were setting up, somebody had broken into my Toyota forerunner and stole all of my original music. Mm. And, and it was funny cause art, oh, that hurts. art was trying to run the guy down. So it gets, kind of stinks anyways those those q5 recordings those q5 recordings were in that in that bag but i still remember you know i still it's a fond memory the one main song got to feel your love tonight by jolyn turner i mean it's cool but the funny part about it was you know i was recording all this stuff and i'd look out at evan you know through the window out on the couch and evan would be like thumbs up thumbs up man you're doing great and 
You know, and then I come in. Every time you say that to me, it reminds me of the Mark Wahlberg movie when the guy's in the booth and he's singing yeah. and he's giving him the thumbs up. Rock star. Dude, it was, it was classic. Evan would be asleep. He'd be with his head back. He's sleeping on the couch. <laughs> and then we get to like at the end of a take and he wanted, I think he wanted to just let me know that he was still there. So he'd like lean up, he'd lean up, <laughs> look into the window and he'd like, yeah, thumbs up, brother. Yeah, he got this. And then he's like, put his head back down on the couch. And, and then I'm, you know, cause I'm working directly with Floyd through the window there doing these songs. And then I think it was, I recorded four songs or three or four songs with them. And then I get a call from Floyd, I think five days later. And he's like, yeah, we're just going to give the money back to the record company. <laughs> <laughs> so so instead, instead of using my vocals, they, they, he voted to give the money back to the record company. <laughs> so oh, man. that was my, that was my fast, uh, my, uh, my short lived Q5, the secret recordings anyway. So the secret recordings of Q5, what can you tell me about this snippet about living on the borderline? <laughs> that I could never sing it. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff they were recording was so different than the older stuff. I just knew there's no way I could go out live with those guys and sing living on the border. You know, I could not sing the old stuff. I couldn't do it, physically do it. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of knew it wasn't going to happen because there's no way, you know, they're, you know, they're not going to go out and do a new album and do a tour and not do the old stuff. So I kind of knew I was doomed from the beginning. And who's, and who's the singer on the Q5 living on the border? You know, I don't even remember who's, who the original singer was. I mean, that's how out of touch I really was with all of it. I mean, this is just, this is literally, this is literally seven days of my life. Hey, that's seven days of your life living on the borderline. <laughs> kind of sounds like Harold Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> Capitol Hill Cop. I'm not reproducing that. Well, we just need to figure out what soundtrack that's going to go into. I'm coming out with a 2022 release of Capitol Hill Cop, which is going to be starring you living seven days on the borderline. 
You know, Dana, one thing I wanted to say, to mention is that when you told me about the tapes, you know, that got taken, part of this Nest Pod and just, you know, telling stories about musical journeys, whether it's musicians, DJ, athletes, it's all about making memories. So it really bums me out to hear that those tapes got stolen from you because that's a part of your memory legacy, if you will. I used to keep all my live recordings, like for bands, in one bag, and I would keep all my original recordings in another bag, and they took the freaking original recordings which that's eh, tough that's a tough one yeah it's it's a that's a hard pill to swallow there it's a hard one to lose when dealing with powerful criminal elements one can never be too well prepared gee whiz aunt harriet what's so important about chopin all music is important dick it's the universal language one of our best hopes for the eventual realization of the brotherhood of man gosh bruce yes you're right I'll practice harder from now on. Well, you got that right, Bruce Wayne, Nespaw. Well, we're going to end this episode part one here, but hang in there and keep those seatbelts fastened for the adventures of Dana Brown part two. Again, can't make this story up. We're going to keep driving down that rabbit hole, the Dana Brown Road, a journey, if you will, filled with more musical memories and band experiences. Because I knew his head was bigger than his talent. Coming at you in part two. Dana's continued saga. Pontiac Catalina Safari Wagon. Evolution and stories with numerous more bands. The Pound Puppies. His role as a sound engineer, providing sound reinforcement, a.k.a. the sound guy for the band Zero to Zero. I wish I knew what all those knobs did. I can't believe that I even left this part of my musical career out. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Dirtbox Jr. Radio Box. Radio Gaga, Housequake, 2000 Degrees, The Notorious 253, and The Davinos. Gonna slide on out of here with one more snippet from the City Kids. Covering a Richard Marks song, Should've Known Better, featuring a young Dana Brown on vocals. Scarlet, what do you think about me breaking off some of them city kids? Thank you very much. I'm good. Mm, mm, mm. Now that sounded good. Podcast segments pulled and edited by Nesworks. Brought to you by Nelcore Technologies. Technology to the T. Bringing you the content you desire. The content you need. It's a doing dollar. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. In 15 minutes, you can lose a room, and I know you know that. Another great song I never want to play again. Remember what Lincoln Hawk said, dude. The world meets nobody halfway. 
remember that. I've never seen a pair of overalls this large in my life. It was like a pair of overalls for a Mack truck. He grabbed his money, grabbed his trophy, and off he goes, and nobody sees him for another year. That's over the top, brother. Sylvester Stallone, over the top. We played some of the most amazing live shows I've probably ever played in my life. Oh my God, they're playing here for why? They're so cool. I'm just saying. All I know is the last time I was at Saratoga Trunk, standing with the mayor of Berrien, Ben Cruz. Houston, we have a problem. I'd like to thank the guys in Zero to Zero because it's been a good ride. It's a Nespod debut, brother. Jay Vocals has given you five minutes to think about what you first bought. That's a bargain. That's a bargain. Show you right. I'm gonna give you a bit more time. A bit more time to reflect the music. Tell me what did you really buy? Pop rock or was it top 40? Guy's wearing a leopard print shirt, I know it. A little time to get to know you better. I grew up on a ranch wearing Wranglers and cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and listening to this. Thumbs up, brother. Yeah. Better read between the lines of all the music you might have purchased. Here we go again. <laughs> You're an OG guy. Yeah. Dig it. Nest pot digging. Clock is ticking. I. Yeah. This is sure some fun, Bruce. Astronomy is more than mere fun, Dick. It is? Yes, it helps give us a sense of proportion. Reminds us how little we are, really. People tend to forget that sometimes. Nelly, you so crazy. As soon as you stop playing this, you just put a period at the end of it. Just put a period on that. Period. And that's it. <laughs>